Amen. Please be seated. You can turn to the insert that has the passage we are studying before us, or turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We are studying six parables over the course of the summer months, and Lord willing, we'll return to our study of Isaiah in August. Today we have come to one of the most uh, famous of Jesus' parables, uh, so-called the parable of the prodigal son. Now chapter 15 has three like parables. All of them are about something that has been lost and then was found, and the rejoicing over it being found. First is the lost sheep, and the shepherd goes and finds, and there's great rejoicing. And then there is the lost coin, uh, The lady turns the house upside down to find the coin she has lost, and there's great celebration when the coin is found. Now, these lost stories climax with the last one, the lost son. But I think you'll notice there are more layers to the last story, and so that's where we will focus. But the context is the same. Jesus is talking to people who are, are, at least they believe that they are believers, There are Pharisees there who are the keepers of the Jewish religion and culture. And they are listening closely to what Jesus says. But Jesus' main main focus is to teach his disciples who will become apostles. Now, there are many other people listening as well. And certainly the message of the prodigal son applies to any sinner who repents and comes to Christ, comes to God through Christ. But he's speaking to people who think of themselves in the kingdom of God. These are not irreligious people he's speaking to. He's speaking to people about understanding the importance of just one sinner coming to salvation, to repent and come to be saved. So hear God's word as I read, starting at verse 11, Luke chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please shine the light of your Holy Spirit on this familiar story so that we might see all that you have for us to learn. Give us conviction where we might be running from you. Give us a spirit of forgiveness when people ask for it, like you do toward us, while giving us an honest look at this tendency of our hearts. Please also give us joy and appreciation and celebration for the grace that you pour out on sinners. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you know this story. It's commonly referred to as the prodigal son. And that's because prodigal generally means wayward. But the word itself is richer, really. It means one who is recklessly wasteful. Not just wayward, but they're doing real damage with their waywardness. And so the prodigal son is described this way. Now, there are others who have noted a fuller meaning for prodigal, like Tim Keller in a book that he wrote and Phil Riken in a sermon he preached, they rather emphasize the prodigal nature of God. Now, before you get too excited and think they're teaching some terrible error, they just mean that prodigal can also mean lavish. Think of it this way. Remember the woman who busted open that expensive jar of perfume to anoint Jesus' feet with it? Some people thought that was recklessly wasteful. How could she do that? Others thought that was lavish. It's really a matter of perspective. God lavishly pours grace upon people who don't deserve it. They deserve punishment instead. That's a, lavish, that's a prodigal God in that sense. That's a clever way to tell a familiar story. But for me, I'm simple when it comes to titles of sermons. I just looked at verse 11, and I think this gives us what we need to follow. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. Two sons. This is a story about two sons and their father, the father. The chapter is about lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin. And now, make no mistake, this is about two lost sons. At its center, the tale of two sons is a lesson about God's grace and our hearts. Let's start at verse 11 as we see the wayward prodigal son who is slow to repent. May it be that none of us uh, fall this far before repenting. He goes as low as you can go. And look at how it develops. In verse 11, Jesus says there's a man who has two sons, 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. You can sense this is a demand. This isn't a question, a request. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Give me my inheritance. Now, there would have been a collective gasp with the Jewish audience listening to this kind of disrespect coming from this Jewish son in this proud Jewish household. How could he speak to his father this way? He is demanding that the father give him what really is supposed to come to him when his father dies. Fully appreciate the disrespect of the son's statement, his request, his demand. He's basically saying, I wish you were dead so I can get my stuff, and I want my stuff now. Some may say the father was too soft, it says in verse 12, and he divided his property between them. I think the father saw the deadness of his son towards him. And in wisdom, recognized letting go would be the way for the son, if he was ever to be found, to be found. The son, in such disrespect, takes from his father that which his father had earned, maybe his father before him had earned, probably generations had accumulated. He turns it to cash. Now recognize, in antiquity, they didn't have treasure chests of gold laying around that they would draw from. It wasn't like they had liquid assets so much. Instead, what they had was in livestock and in land. And an inheritance would be given when you died. Sometimes it would be given just before you died. When you're older, you're disabled, you would break up your land between children. And they would then take the land, though, and multiply it intend it and get the fruit from it and grow it in their lifetimes. It wasn't the idea or the norm where they would sell it and then take the cash and run or go. And so here you have, before the father is even dead, essentially saying, you're dead to me, give me what is coming to me. It says in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey. So you assume after he had turned these assets into liquid assets, into cash of one sort or another. He gathered all he had and took a journey. He went a a long way off into a far country. And we are told there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he had this store of cash, and we are told that he wasted it recklessly, thoughtlessly, foolishly disgracefully even. We're not given detail on how this happened, but in some time, we're not told how long, he blows all the money. And then verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. So now he has no cash, nothing left. And when a famine arises, all the industry shut down. That mean, all commerce is built on the agrarian uh, centerpiece. So when there's No crops growing, nobody's working. It's a terrible state of affairs, and it's a sign of God's disfavor. It's one of the worst things that happens, especially in antiquity, in a world that isn't that connected to where they can go somewhere else and get food immediately. It's a terrible state and a terrible time to be broke. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now, thankfully, this guy, who's been throwing a party probably every night for who knows how long, has lots of friends, right? living recklessly, spending his money. you got a lot of friends when you're doing that kind of thing. But here's the problem. He no longer has the money to promote that lifestyle any longer. 
So he has to hire himself out in whatever job he can find because he began to be in need. Verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. There could not be a lower job. I mean, cleaning the restrooms in a truck stop with a toothbrush would be more noble than what he was doing here. To feed pigs in the field, as a Jewish man especially. And this is how bad it gets. In verse 16, as he's feeding, not even solid fruit, the husks, really the corn husks is what he's feeding the pigs. They'll eat anything. And as he was feeding, it says in verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And those friends he had, nowhere to be found. No one gave him anything. This is rock bottom. We've studied this before in Scripture, and this man is at rock bottom. And as we have discovered in Scripture, it's when God takes us to rock bottom, that's where his grace appears first. We might think when we read the story, his grace appears when the Father runs out to meet him. But in actuality, the work of God happens in this man, in this gracious work of God, when, it give, when the Spirit of God gives him repentance. That's what's meant by verse 17. But when he came to himself, remember this is a man who grew up knowing what is true. When he came to himself, where did he come to himself? In utter filth, longing to eat the food of pigs. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. That's where God's grace meets him. When he comes to himself. When he realizes the state of his affairs and how low it is. And not just that, he realizes the only place he can go. The place of grace. What's repentance? It's a saving grace. It's when God makes a sinner turn from his sin and turn to him. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, and this is how we know his repentance is real. Listen to his, not only is he acting, but he's saying what is true. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. His sin, as all sin, is chiefly against God first. And we have to recognize this. And he recognizes this as he's feeding the pigs, longing to eat their food. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He would be happy to be a slave in his father's house. I love how our confession captures the biblical concept of repentance that's on display with this son. In question 87, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The reason why people don't believe it when you say, I'm sorry or I don't like my sin, is it doesn't look like you hate it. Because that's what real repentance is. It's like you realize what you're doing is eating pig feed. And you're sick of it. It doesn't matter what else. i got to get out of this pig pen I'm in 
and I hate it, and I want out of it, and I'll go to the only place I can go where there's real food, and that's where, where God's grace is. He arose, it says in verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, what do we learn from this son first before we consider the father? Friends, while you have breath in your lungs, you can repent. God must give you repentance, but the way he gives you repentance is when you hear his word, the word of grace, you respond, and you recognize that that is your only hope. You see, by God's grace, the pigsty you are in, called your sin, that you've given over to, and you hate it, and you see God's grace in Christ to you, and you run to it. So if you have breath, you can repent, no matter what it is. There's no sin that you have committed that is greater than the victorious, conquering blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Not one sin. As it says in the story, it may be true for you if you're running from God, but when he came to himself, may the Holy Spirit snap you out of your wallowing with the pigs long enough to see what God's grace has for you. May it be true for all of us. You may be wayward. You may have made a mess of God's gifts to you. You may be slow to repent, but you can repent. This story is good news for all prodigals, all of us backsliders. God's grace is greater than all your sin. Just like the hymn writer Toplady said, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The younger son, called the prodigal son, is the picture of any wayward sinner repenting and turning to God. The younger son proves that anyone can be forgiven by God, no matter what you've done. The younger son is a picture of the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Now, the picture of God in this story depicted by the Father. Look at verse 20. The Father teaches us about the amazing grace of God teaches us about the joy of God when a sinner repents. Verse 20, he arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, how could his father see him a long way off? Only if he'd been looking for him, waiting for him, never giving up on him. His father saw him and felt compassion. Finally, he's coming. And look at him. He looks terrible. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now there's a lot wrapped up in this verse, verse 20. It screams of God's grace to us on display. First, it's very clear that the Father wants to make a public display of this. Why? Well, after disgracing one's father like the son did, the whole community would be aware of this disgrace, and the whole community would be on guard for when he comes back. Certainly, he's going to come back asking for more. Cynics would think. Reasonable people, reasonable people might think. And so he's coming into town and the neighbors who know what this son has done to their father might run out and say, go back the way you came. Don't ever come back here again. You brought nothing but pain here. Leave here. We don't want to see your face here. You are disowned by all of us, not just your father. Get out of here. And the father knows this about the culture and he's not going to let anybody step in the way of bringing his son back into full fellowship. So he runs out to meet him. So everybody sees this is my son. And he runs. 
This is an older man, a Jewish man of nobility. He would have worn a robe not dissimilar to the way this robe is, with a belt in the middle, and he would have had to hike up the middle and put it in the belt and run with his underwear showing, basically, and his white legs across the landscape as everybody watched this display. Not becoming at all. But he doesn't care because his son was lost. And now he's found. Who cares what it looks like when I start to celebrate that? And the father takes off after him because he has compassion on him. He sees. He could see by the the look of his son who had come from a pigsty where nobody helped him. He was emaciated, no doubt. His clothes draped off him. His shoes wore out. Stinking of pig stink. And it's the worst stink that you can smell. And this is his son. And he has compassion on him. He runs to embrace him. And it says in the text he kissed him. And we think gave him a peck on the cheek. Not at all. Kissed him and kissed him and kissed him is the way the language speaks here. He poured celebration over his son. The son, no doubt overwhelmed with this display, says to him in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Almost to interrupt him, almost not paying attention to him, the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe. He wants to cover up the filth of his son. He wants to put the best robe, not just get up a pair of clothes so we can get him inside. Get the best robe right now. Put it on him, and that's what he has put on him. Put a ring on his hand, which no doubt a signet ring that shows the family seal. He's back as a son. Sonship restored. And shoes on his feet, because I'm sure there's nothing on his feet or what he has is tattered. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. The fattened calf would be saved for a great uh, celebration, a wedding, or some other feast purpose. And it's always there, getting bigger and bigger and ready to eat. And this is such a purpose. Get the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Not only was the father gracious and compassionate, he was joyful and rejoicing. Please see this about God's grace. He doesn't just forgive you for your sins. That would be enough. He takes you in as his own son, or daughter. A huge difference here. It's not just that you walk into court and you're found, okay, not guilty, go on your way. It's not guilty, and by the way, you're coming home with me, the judge says. And you're my son, with full privileges. I know everything you've done, and I forgive you for the sake of Christ, and now you're my son or daughter. For the sake of Christ doesn't mean I just let you go now. It's now you have become mine because of what Christ has purchased. What a picture of God's grace shown by this father of this lost son. You know, earlier in the chapter, there's an escalation that happens that's wonderful in chapter 15. It starts with the lost sheep, as I mentioned earlier, and in 15 verse 7, after the sheep is found, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So there's rejoicing in heaven over a sinner who repents, Jesus says about the lost sheep. Then a few verses later about the lost coin. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So heaven, the heavenly host, the angels, they celebrate when one repents. But there's a culminating that happens in verse 23. When we have the Father, who's the picture of God now, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's not just the angels now, not just the host of heaven, but God the Father himself celebrates when a, redeem, when a person's redeemed, when a person repents. 
That's what the Father does over us when we repent. He celebrates, and that's the picture we have in the Father. And it reminds me of something that's consistent through Scripture in the Old Testament, Zephaniah, speaking to a wayward people. A wayward people says, The Lord your God is in your midst to the people of God. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That is who our God, whatever your picture of God is, it ought to have celebration over the repentance of a sinner. That's what he does. That's what is on display for us. So when we look at this picture, on the one hand, when we consider the picture of God the Father given us, we have to have a right understanding of how God views his children, you and I. He rejoices over us. He loves us. God celebrates our repentance and faith in him. And our repentance and faith serve to glorify God. And God celebrates all of this. God does not only forgive you when you believe on Christ, he makes you his son or his daughter. We are his children, and he is our doting father. Now, there's something else, though, I want you to see. Another corollary. If this is a picture of a, of a gracious, celebrating father, there's another way it translates to us, I believe. Something to learn about our own parenthood. How we look at others. Maybe some of us are waiting for prodigals to return home. Maybe some has suffered great shame because of a wayward son, a wayward daughter, a wayward brother, a wayward sister, or wayward friend. Maybe some have suffered considerable material loss because of foolish choices made by rebellious ones. My dear friend, my brother, and my sister, do not give up. Don't ever stop pleading with God for their soul. Don't ever think that any amount of material things you have had to spend in order to see some eternal benefit, that somehow that's a waste. That stuff will be gone. Souls live forever. Be ready for their return. Be looking. Receive them with open arms. Celebrate their return because in so doing, you are worshiping God for his mercy and grace that brings it about. Be gracious, be patient, be forgiving. Because God has been gracious, patient, and forgiving with each of us all the time. The story is not just about a father who lost his, who found his lost son. The story is deeper and more profound. Remember what verse 11 says? There was a man who had two sons. Now, very bluntly, in a church like this, it's quite possible that the real thrust of the message isn't on the first son for us. Certainly it applies. I hope we have lots of younger sons who've come in repentance. But the chances are high in an established church that we might have more trouble with the thing on display through the older son, and we have to be honest about that. Look at this grumbling son with a hardened heart. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. He was dutiful. He was doing his job. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. What's going on? He's thinking to himself. He calls to one of the servants and asks what these things meant. And the servant says, your brother. He said, wait a minute, hold on. I, I mean, my brother? You're talking about the one who left with his inheritance 
took a huge chunk out of our whole operation and our livelihood, disgraced my father and my family. That's not my brother. But the servant says, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. What did he do? He killed the fattened calf, the calf that I've been raising to feed for this purpose of celebration somehow? Because he has received him back safe and sound. He received him? He knows what that means. That's restoration. He's a son again after what he's done? But he was angry and refused to go in. Now the ending of this story is different from the lost sheep and the lost coin earlier in the chapter. And this ending may be the most important part for us in the story. Jesus speaking, of course, with the Pharisees in earshot, who had long been keepers of Jewish culture and religion. They were bothered that the Gentiles were somehow now coming into the kingdom of God, according to Jesus' teaching. They were angry about this development. Jesus told the stories to show the joy of God in saving sinners, sinners of all stripes. But their hearts were hard, and they grumbled like the older brother. See, they viewed themselves, and this is the key, they viewed themselves as being faithful. You know, we've been here faithful in the church all this time. And then this person, Johnny come lately, gets saved out of all the stuff they did, living the way they did, having their life the way it is, all, all this fun they had, they think. And now they just come and just pray a prayer, and now we're supposed to all just celebrate them. Well, that's not right. They need to be here for a while. They need to earn something for a while. They need to be like us for a while. Verse 28, in hearing of the great, marvelous love and grace of our God, he was angry and refused to go in. And I want you to notice something. The father treated them equally. Two lost sons, make no mistake. This second son is as lost as the first one was at rock bottom. His father came out and entreated him. So when the first son came back, he saw him and ran to him. The other son is just sitting outside on the porch. And he goes out and entreats him. He entreats both sons. But look at the answer that the older son gives. Very disrespectfully, this word, look, it's almost as though he's right in his father's face, poking him in the chest. Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Now, do you think that's true of any son? I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So much to be seen here. You can be lost in two ways. You can be lost in sin and vice so much that you cannot see your need for Christ. Many in our culture are, are just immersed in this and they can't get out of it. The younger brother was this way for some time and people perish that way. But you can also be lost in your perception of your own righteousness. You might think you're okay with God because you're religious, you're faithful, you're obedient, you did this, you did that, and you're just as lost. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Really? He's awful. I'm not. But you celebrate him. So the younger, the older brother is comparing his righteousness with the younger son. Not with God's standard of righteousness or anything like that. And how do we know this is true? You remember earlier in the story when describing what he did with the money of his father, the text says that he squandered his property with reckless living. Remember that? That's all it said. But see, when you're trying to bring someone else down to bring yourself up, you're going to fill in some blanks. And the younger son does what we can do. He said he squandered it with prostitutes. 
It doesn't say that in the text. Now, he may have, he may not have. We don't know. It was reckless living. But you can see what's happening. I want to make the younger son look as unrighteous as possible so I look righteous. And he is lost in his righteousness because it's really filth. The older son is as lost as the younger son. And people who've been in the church a long time could fall into this. They could think, because I've been here so long and I've done the right things, I look a certain, a certain way, that they are skeptical when any sinner comes to faith in Christ. They say, how could this be? I want to see this. Verse 31, sobering words from the father. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You are my son. You could kill the goat anytime you wanted. I would have said you could have killed the fattened calf because it's all yours. You have lost it. You are my son. How pathetic this is. It was thus, thus fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost and he's found. What an irony. I hope you catch the irony. The younger son, who was a son, lost, in his, son, lost his sonship by his filth and by his disconnect and his sin and his rebellion, completely lost his sonship and his experience of it. And so he comes to the lowest possible place in humility, says, you know what, I don't have to be a son. I could be a slave and I would be better off than I am now. I'll come back to you as a slave. Make me a slave. And the father says, no, you're my son. But the older brother, who is a son, by the father's declaration, by the father's understanding, legally and in every practical way, you are my son. But he thinks he's a slave. He treats his father like a slave master, sees himself as a slave in his house, totally loses what it means to be a son. I hope you could see how somebody could be really religious and totally lost because they think their righteousness is what makes them right with God. The only thing that makes anybody right with God is the righteousness of Christ credited to us by faith. Whether it be the lost son in the pig pen or the son who's been in church for 30 years, we must believe the same thing, that our sin gains us separation from God, and the only thing that makes us united together with him is faith in the righteous one, Christ himself. And that's the great salvation we're all saved by. And we all should come every Sunday to celebrate that, whether you just got saved because of some circumstance like the younger son, or you've always been saved. As long as you can remember from the time you were a little child, you should still be in awe of the grace of God in Christ to us. And that is the picture we have before us on display. It's the challenge. Because we don't know what the older brother did. It leaves it there. He entreats him to come in, but we're not told he ever comes in. I love what Philip Ryken says on this passage. The elder brother was completely lost. Lost in his refusal to reconcile. Lost in his rejection of his father's joy. Lost in his striving for self-salvation. Lost in resentment for his brother's reward. And lost in the unrighteous desires of his own sinful heart. But he was lost mostly because he rejected his sonship. Seeing himself as a slave instead of a son. The tale of two sons is a lesson about God's grace in our hearts. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The tale of two sons that are lost. Which son do you identify with? Are you the younger son who found God at rock bottom? Then sing your praises, as I'm sure you are. Sing your praises to God, literally, and by the way you live your life in response of thankfulness to him. I hope we have lots of people who can tell a story like the younger son. Or are you the older son who has been raised to know God, but you have struggled to love him and appreciate his grace? Are you the older son who looks upon other sinners and sees them as somehow less deserving than you? 
Do you refuse to rejoice with God over the saving of sinners? If that's you, you're probably lost. The younger son was found as the father ran to him and embraced him in his repentance. The older son was lost, and we never learn if he was found. The father went to him and entreated him to come and celebrate grace. How might the older son be found? Well, the father said it. You're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Celebrating that should never, ever get old to us, no matter how long we've been an older brother or an older sister. Rejoice in the salvation that God has guarded you with, but also rejoice in the salvation that God is saving lost sinners with every day. We can agree with what Norval Geldenhuis wrote. So inexplicably wonderful is the love of God that he not merely forgives the repentant sinner, but actually goes to meet him and embraces him in his love and in his grace. Let's pray. Father, this story is about your marvelous grace to us sinners. As Isaac Watts wrote, and we will sing, O thou that hearest when sinners cry, though all my crimes before you lie, Behold them not with an angry look, but for the sake of Christ, blot their memory from your book. Lord, whether we relate with the destitution of the younger son and have been recipients of the miraculous, transforming, life-changing grace that you bestow, or whether we relate with having known you for many years because of your great covenantal grace, we know what sin is. We can be honest about the depth of our own depravity. Give our congregation a rejoicing over the salvation of sinners through Christ. Lord Jesus, you did not say what the older brother did in response to the Father's invitation to come and celebrate salvation. Please make our times of corporate worship especially, among other things, to be times for us as Christians to express our thankfulness for your great grace, to rejoice in your salvation, the salvation of sinners, and celebrate like the angels in heaven do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.